I'm Stephen Crafty and this is Talking Design. It's a fortnightly podcast on all things design from architecture, fashion, decorative arts, jewellery, you name it. And today I'm with Debbie Ryan, uh, interior designer and co-director of McBride Charles Ryan. And I've known uh, Debbie and Rob, Rob McBride, her partner, her life and business partner for many years. And I first stumbled across their studio, a very humble little space in Queensbury Street in um, Melbourne. There was only two or three of them. It was like a little garret. Uh, but I somehow knew that this couple were going to do amazing things in the world of architecture and design. And I've proved right. I mean, they win regularly win awards each year. And their work is sheer, is sheer joy to look at. So here's Debbie. And... Um, we were talking just before we arrived here about the start, because a lot of people look at what you're doing now and very envious of the projects you get, but it was difficult to start with, wasn't it? Tell me a little bit about your background, you and Rob's background. We started our practice just before the recession. That was uh, 1991? <clears throat> uh, well, we were 1988 that we actually um, started our um, practice, but... We had a little bit of work to start, and that's why we went out on our own, because that was actually a very buoyant period. But of course, almost as soon as we went into our own practice, which was um, a dumpy little space with about, you know, six inches of pigeon dirt, and we had to clean it up and paint it and all the rest of it, um, the bottom fell out of the market, and there was no work. And we had to basically knock from door to door, take it in turns of going out and doing consultancy work and bringing the money back into the practice. And um, we had to basically, in the end, um, collect a few projects. We did a bit of work for some other architectural firms. And we, in the end, did our own project because that was the, really the th only way we could get going. And we had very little money. So I. When you say do your own project, buy the land, develop it, produce something. That's right. We got my brother um, and his friend, who really had the money because they had jobs that paid and we were leaning on them in a way in terms of getting a bank loan and that sort of thing um, and we did a three building project um, where we each had a house in the end and we had to stretch the truth with the bank of course and um, but anyway that's the that's the way we got going and we just did our own project and that got noticed and what was that project in? that was in Lagon Street Port Melbourne three townhouses and what was so unique about them um, we had a single sinusoidal facade and it was in a back lane where no one, it'd been on the market for two years, no one wanted it. It was block a little, of land. it was a little block, tiny block of land in a back lane, bluestone lane, um, and no one else wanted it, but we thought you can put three houses there, so let's have a go. And we convinced my brother and his friend to do that and be part of the project. And um, to be honest, none of us looked back after that because it meant that we all got into the housing market. We had a little bit of an asset that we could then use as a springboard to go on and do other things. And, um, you know, we then went on and did another larger development where we got 10 people involved. This was Wednesday. Yes. Yes, that's right. So um, in Wednesday Road, you know, we got a group of 10 friends. Oh, well, actually, it was really eight because we had more or less, you know... Um, we had one unit and my parents had one, so I suppose it's nine. Um, and we did a much bigger project because basically when we'd done the first project, um, a lot of our friends had said, if you do that, we'd like to be involved again. None of them could buy within seven kilometres of the city and they all wanted 
uh, to do so, and they'd been to auctions and been never were able to beat uh, the highest bidder. So now, Deb, when most people think of townhouses, they think of um, you know brick, two stories, nice little neat front garden, you know, pretty standard stock. But the Winstow project was quite different, and it was quite divisive. I still remember seeing people walk past, and um, there was either, you know, sheer delight, and people were getting quite excited about this crumpled facade that looked like paper, and then other people I, I remember saying, oh, it looks like an old bag. So it was kind of really interesting how people were polarised about this really unique, and it won several awards Yeah, one Urban Design Awards and Architecture Awards. What was the challenge of doing something so out there? Um, Look, I think we particularly chose a street that had a lot of 60s walk-up flats, so we didn't really think that we'd get much opposition from the council. We were very careful about that because we had a group of 10 people who were relying on us to provide them a house. So it was nerve-wracking for us. We had a huge responsibility. And when I look back, I think we were crazy to take the risks that we did because, you know, it was just absolutely full of risk. Um, But what we did try to do was that um, I suppose it was very commune-like in a way. Um, We brought along a um, single mother and she didn't have the finance really to be able to get a loan from the bank by herself. But as a group, we decided to bring her along and um, include her in the group. And fortunately, it all worked out, you know, um, everyone went on to buy bigger houses and, you know, get their family home and that sort of thing. We're the last ones that are still living there. It is different to what you currently see, although there are a lot of 60s walk-up flats. At the time, the council, uh, there was a lot of uh, hoo-ha because people claimed it was a Victorian street and there are Victorian houses in the street. But we did a photo montage of the entire street and we could clearly demonstrate to the council that actually it wasn't really a Victorian street. It was already a street that had been quite eroded. So we managed to get it through the council and we did do heavy consultation with all of our neighbours and things like that. I don't think that we we got much opposition after a little while. I think that change is always difficult for people to yeah. accept. And um, I think any change is, is, is always slightly uncomfortable for people. So um, I think probably the, fir- you know, the first, um, when it was sort of really taking shape you know people would stop at the front and yell out the window well done keep going or you know you should be ashamed of yourself um (laughs) but after that i don't think there was that much opposition what's the difficulty in going that extra length because you it obviously cost you a lot more time in money and research developing the uh, side facade which looks like crumpled um, paper even though it's concrete there is that extra step that you obviously had to go to to develop this quite unique product. You okay. tend to do that with a lot of your work, whether mm. it's a, um, a school or it's a an institutional building. It is taking... I think we do always go the extra mile. It's How passion. It? It's called passion. We have an absolute passion for what we do and um, we are intent on producing good buildings. That's, that's really what we're intent on. Um, it's often difficult and, you know, um, I think that... You know, most things that are worthwhile in life are difficult and have problems. But if you can make your way through that, um, you know, there's um, there's some good rewards. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a number of questions I'm interested in um, in asking you. You're known for your colour. I mean, I yeah. think when people mention Debbie Lynn, uh, Debbie um, from McBride, Charles Ryan, they know you as a colourist, and you really work a lot with colour. 
right through from the late 80s right through to the present and it seems to be you're very consistent in using colour rather than using it whether it's fashionable or not. Tell me a little bit about how you use colour and what it achieves. Look, um, I am very interested in colour and um, how you can use it. I mean, I, I think it's much like an artist and it's got to do with composition. Um, one thing I bemoan is the um, loss of colour in our lives today. I mean, you, I look out the window and a lot is what I call greyish. You know, it's beige and grey. And um, I think it's not what human beings value. The things that they really value when you look at it, the things that are in ritual, like um, are in church costumes of any denomination or um, religious um, places of worship of any denomination, they do have colour. And it's because it's special. And um, if you even look at a garden, you know, the thing that is special in that garden is the flower. Um, it's not the brown dirt um, and I think that that's the way I use it as well I don't think um, look sometimes it has dominated and I think you always look at the situation that you're in for example um, in Fitzroy High School colour does dominate tell me about Fitzroy High because for people who can't recall it it's worth driving past it's glazed brick bands of, str of, of glazed brick in beautiful bands. It's almost like a Masoni sweater, um, limes and oranges. Tell me a little bit about how that developed, that, that design. Um, well, um, Fitzroy High School approached us and, um, you know, we had to go through the normal um, government building process, which is a sort of more or less a tender type process. There were four architectural firms that were interviewed and then we were selected by a property group, you know, from that school. Um, and the reason that they said they selected us was because we listened to what they wanted instead of telling them what they should have. And I think that's an important lesson in design. I mean, I think that you are, always have to be mindful of what you want, but in the end you have to listen to your client and you have to satisfy that as well. Um, and anyway, so they chose us for that reason. We were in a normal government school um, process and there is a very limited budget and there's very strict rules about how you can use that budget. But what we did was we took the components of that and reshuffled them in a way. Um, the glazed brick facade is really... What, what one thing we bemoaned on that project was the fact that most new school buildings were tin sheds, which we have grave concerns about because... Um, Thermal conditions. Well, that, uh, that as well as they don't have longevity. And I think that if you look at the history of educational buildings, um, they were valued by society and a lot of, you know, a large percentage of the money was spent on them and um, that was available and they were um, something that was a community resource and seen as such and that's one thing that we thought we should return to and um, those buildings are still in use and, you know, it's 100 years later and they're still going. We th saw that as actually a gift to the next generation and that's really what we should be trying to do. So we looked at providing good bones and we thought with the interior, you know, even though things got cut out as the process went along, there is the opportunity for the school to put those things back in through fundraising efforts, et cetera, et cetera, because it's easy to do. Um, and so what we did was we actually calculated the cost of every single brick and to get that colour patterning and things like that, we worked out how we could use the cheapest bricks available and the most expensive bricks available and by putting them together we could get this 
you know, amazing. magical, amazing effect. So we calculated the cost of every single brick and worked it out so that we could fit within a normal government budget because we wanted to provide brick, something that had longevity, good thermal, um, good thermal value and that sort of thing. The other thing I was reading somewhere that the the colour of the brick, you know, people say, oh, it's very contemporary, how does it fit in? But I remember speaking to you and you said, well, actually the colours were very much indicative or inspired by some of the Victorian, Italianate Victorian houses in the area with their very rich tessellated That's right. tiles. Well, in that particular area, you know, Italianate architecture is, um, there's a lot of it. And um, so we went around the general area and we observed what was actually in Fitzroy and there was a lot of Italianate architecture which is heavily patterned. The colours are not always the same as what we provide on Fitzroy, but we were looking at the broader Fitzroy context as well, and it is quite a bohemian sort of suburb, and there is a lot of bright colour, you know, and it's the young people that, you know, have continually for genera- a few generations um, brought this to that suburb, and um, we thought it was something worth celebrating and including as part of the Fitzroy character. But certainly the patterning, um, you know, has a strong relationship to the Italianate architecture of the area. What I've noticed, uh, particularly in recent years, how there's been a real renaissance when it comes to educational architecture, that some of the most exciting projects this year in the Architectural Awards were from schools, and you contributed a number of schools, or two schools, uh, for this, this year's One award. was a university and one was a school. One yeah. was a university and one was a school. Penley, for example, mm-hmm. wonderful, wonderful um, project that was kind of inspired by um, an Edwardian house. Um, but quite gothic in some way, but quite voluptuous. I mean, just very, very engaging. Mm. What is it with schools that, you know, have set the agenda? Is it the government? It's purely um, the BER program. I mean, we um, the BER program provided money. And if architects what is again, the BER program? It's um, build, building education revolution. So the government, that was part of the stimulus package. The first round was the cash handout and the second uh, round was uh, schools and halls and things like that. And so Penley and Essendon Grammar, like many other schools, um, received um, a government contribution, which was significant and allowed them to do that building. And it was a very quick process. We had very short amount of time to design it. I think it was less than four weeks that we had to actually design the building. Um, and we had to have a site shed by August or something like that. And I can't remember the exact time because times don't mean anything to me, but it's just that we've given a job to do and we just do it. Um, but um, we were in the same position as everybody else. But, you know, fortunately, I think when it comes to those situations, you know, you seize the opportunity. I mean, that's what it's always been about for us. You know, if we're given an opportunity, we make the absolute most we possibly can out of it. And in that situation, we didn't have much time. We kind of pulled something out of the back pocket. You know, we worked on a project um, previously for a house where it was in a federation area. And um, we had worked with this idea of um, doing a federation silhouette of the for the facade. And um, what struck us about the Penley site was that actually federation dominated the area. And it is a residential area. Um, Windy Hill is opposite on one side, but other than that, there's houses, you know, in the um, in the surrounding blocks. But unlike a Federation home with windows and turrets and lace curtains, yours is almost a blank facade. It's the it's the silhouette hmm. and the material which is well, is is black glazed bricks. Black glazed bricks. Yes. So from the street, it just looks like this shadowy or reflective. 
Yeah, I mean, object. What, um, and it's it, it is exactly a sort of oversized um, silhouette of a Federation house, and it's a bit like a Ron Muick sculpture, because it has this. It is oversized, and so that sort of whole idea of scale is sort of um, thrown into play. And um, this is for um, ten to twelve year old boys. It's for years um, five to six junior boys school at Penley and Essendon Grammar. And um, it was a fantastic school committee there who were able to make decisions very quickly. And so we're able to achieve... I mean, I love the school. It's one of my favourite projects at the moment that we've got, you know, that we've just completed. And um, I think it's been a great outcome because what we tried to achieve on that project was ignite the imagination of a 10 to 12-year-old boy. And I think we've done it. I mean, you know, at one stage, one father said that he'd taken the drawings home and his son said it looked like Hogwarts. And we said, we said, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can't have Harry Potter without being a little bit scared. Um, in the end, um, you know, Harry Potter's sold more than any other book, you know, in, in the world practically for children. And um, uh, we thought, you know, if we can have that association, we're not worried about that. So, Deb, also, how has... Uh, the process of education change has obviously influenced the way you're building now. You know, the, we're not kids aren't learning in traditional classrooms. Well, the thing, the interesting thing about um, Penley and Asson and Grammar is that they opted for a more traditional oh. type classroom. Fitzroy, for example, um, did not. And what I would say is that, as um, architects and designers, um, it is not our job to tell people how to teach. We can show them all of the current thinking and point them towards um, things that are uh, documented, um, which we did. And But most of all of those things, Penley, Nesson and Grammar had actually read, but they'd made a clear decision that they wanted to stick with the classroom and breakout space. And to, in many respects, I think that actually gave us a lot of freedom because that was a given. There was no going there. We have read all the research. We want, we get really good results with a um, normal classroom set out with breakout spaces, so there is no option to look at anything else in that regard. But everything else is up for grabs. Right. So that actually, because we didn't have to go into the research of all of that in a very short time period, which the BR required, we were able to um, think about other things, like developing the idea of the silhouette facade right. and that sort of thing. And that was partly about stitching into its local environment. It was partly about igniting the imagination of a 10 to 12-year-old boy. Um, and it was um, about providing the facility that they required within the amount of time because basically it's kind of a brutalist facade on one side. Uh, it's basically a four-sided building and one side is like a Federation grandstand, which we thought about the um, view from above so you can see it on um, Google Field. Earth. Um, and you can actually read the silhouette from Google Earth because it's a sliced kind of um, reading. And um, and then on one side, it's like a brutalist facade, and on the other side, we call it a Shinto shrine. So uh, it has four distinct um, facades, but the brutalist facade allowed us just to extrude that um, Federation I gonna, style. I was going to ask you, Deb, how do you, what's the design process? How do you tend to work? How do you generate an idea? Where does it Where does it come from? I mean, obviously, you're influenced by lots of things that you see, but you know, when you're given a brief, what? Are, how does it evolve? Well, if you do listen carefully, and as I said, that's a very important thing to do. Um, if you listen very careful about, carefully about the things that the group or the person is trying to achieve, um, you actually, you know, you gain some understandings of where they're coming from and, and what they want out of it. 
And then we always look at the context, you know, where it's placed, um, where it's placed in the broader arena as well. And we, I mean, you, you know, you can't help but be influenced by um, the architectural ideas that you're thinking about, which kind of relate more to the history of architecture, I suppose. Um, and so all those things in some way gel. And, you know, you might go through a few things where you think it's just not right, it just doesn't feel comfortable in your skin um, because though all of those things are not gelling. But then you know the moment when it does gel and that's when you run with it. Um, Do you worry about the return of very conservative architecture at the moment? I mean, your houses are quite... They're all bespoke. They, they make a statement whether it's quiet or slightly louder, but there's, you know, there's a sense of presence to the street. And at the moment, we've got so many, you know, Georgian revival homes that are just mass-produced and don't really add much to the street. Do you get quite despondent when you see the amount of uh, reproduction work that's going on? And I, rather than looking towards mm. the future and making a contribu contribution to contemporary architecture? Look, I think that they can ruin a suburb if you have too much of one thing. I mean, I think that's the case with any particular style. If you have too much of one thing... Contemporary or... Well, period, I don't know whether that's yeah. true because there yeah. are some remarkable examples throughout history where there have been whole streets of the same thing and it's yeah. been fantastic. Um, but look, I, I, um, I think that it's a great shame when really fantastic buildings are removed, uh, you know, are demolished to be replaced by something which is really a cheap re reproduction of something else. Um, and I find that quite um, quite strange in a way, for, particularly for suburbs like Turak, where you know the people actually are quite wealthy, but you know they are getting a kind of a is cheap it, reproduction of something that was. Why is it Debo? Is it lack of confidence, or is it just maybe easy? it's birds of a feather flock together? I'm not really sure what it is, but look, I think these things change, and you know, like I don't ever lose hope because. Um, I'm an optimist, basically, and I think that, you know, that it'll probably get to a point where people will see that that's, um, you know, you don't want a whole suburb of the same thing, and um, they'll be looking for other things, because in the end it might become boring. So maybe it's always been the same, that there's, you know, there's been these exceptions, but there has been a, a general kind of housing which is um, um, has been repeated. I mean, if you just even um, look at look, look at early Australian housing or whatever, I mean, there was a lot of working men's cottage, Victorian cottages that were all the same. I was going to ask you, what do you think is the most challenging thing for, for you as a designer at the moment? What do you find the most difficult thing about what you're doing? Um, we're working on much larger projects. Um, and how, I mean, how many staff do you employ now? Oh, we've got 21 now. That's quite large. Yeah, so... Um, it's, uh, you know, that's sort of brought all sorts of other difficulties. You know, we've uh, had to change our style, I suppose, in terms of um, managing that amount of people. Um, I think that that's had, um, you know, great difficulty for us because, you know, for a start, we've got to accommodate those people. Um, and, um, you, know, you, there's, you know, when you had four people in your office, you could talk to everyone. You knew exactly where they were. You knew if they were having a bad day and why. Um, that sort of thing. When you have 21 people, it's not possible to do that. So you have to work out other ways of um, managing people, really. And um, it's not always easy. Um, I think that, um, that when you're working on those la larger projects, there's all sorts of other difficulties. You're dealing with um, big developers who have other expectations. And, Quick. Um, 
yeah, they want things yeah, quickly. That they want things quickly. Um, but there's all sorts of other things that go on that, you know, I'd probably be here for another yeah. day if I <laughs> started on that one. But um, Is it difficult being a woman running a practice? Uh, yes, it's extremely difficult. I live in a male-dominated world, and construction is probably worse than any other industry, I would say, probably besides mining or something and like that. And not getting better? I think it's tough. I think that if um, in any place that I am, if they could exclude me, they would. How, I, do, you get, how do you get around that? Oh, look, I, I think that, you know, underneath it all, I might not seem it, but I'm actually quite shy, and um, I struggle with it all the time. I struggle with it. It's hard to actually put yourself forward. And um, I I notice that it is something, even within the female staff in our own office, that um, there it is harder for females to actually put themselves forward and that sort of thing. I think, generally speaking, um, the males are more confident, and I'm not really quite sure why that is. I'm trying to pinpoint it. Uh, maybe it's got to do with, you know, playing team sports when they're young and, you know, having to compete, you know, in a strong field. I'm not sure. Um, but... Um, I think that uh, confidence is a, is a big issue for women. And I'm really pleased to see that there are some women coming through now and um, doing good things. And there always has been a few strong women, but I think that they're, they're probably beating, you know, beating hard against the tide um, on an everyday level. What do you enjoy most about what you're doing? I mean, it's a very simple question, but I, I think, you know, you, the hours are long. It's it can be very challenging to get everyone to perform when they're meant to perform. But what's the thing that really drives you and you find the most rewarding thing? It's fantastic when you get that building built. Um, that's what you're you're striving for. And, um, you know, like I I go back to Penley and Essendon Grandma now, the, the junior school, and it just makes me smile. And you think this is what, a, you know, you've had a tough day and you've just had to deal with a whole lot of really hard issues. And you go out there and you think, ah. Oh, that's what I do it for. Um, you know, these boys are really enjoying it and um, I can see it's really working for them and it's not a building I'm embarrassed by. I feel proud of that building. Um, and um, this is what it's all about. I mean, when we went to the opening of that school, a grade five boy wrote a poem about his experience of the building and it was remarkable. You know, the things that he had picked up, which were quite subtle, because we have a breezeway, you know, one of the, the brutalist sort of facade is kind of a breezeway corridor. And his description of being able to see through the slats and autumn leaves falling, something like that, um, was incredibly sensitive. And I thought, if we can stimulate a grade five boy to come up with that. We've done something right, you know? <laughs> look, thanks so much, Deb, for coming in today. It's been absolutely a pleasure, and um, I look forward to seeing you on the winner's podium. So well, thank you. And thank you, Stephen, for all of your support over the years and for inviting me here. No, thank you, Deb. Mm -hmm.